G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman, wheeler and dealer in wills and estates, and legal information to a tedious degree. The topic I'm going to bombard you with today is the topic of family provision claims. That is where an eligible person makes a claim for provision from a deceased person's estate, and in particular, can a stepchild make such a claim, and if they do, will they be successful? John William Brown died on the 23rd of October 2019. He was 76 years old. He had been married to and separated from Margaret Brown. John and Margaret's relationship started in 1971. She had two children from a previous relationship, David Brown and Alison Brown, who became John's stepchildren. David was 10 years old and Alison was 6 years old when their mother began seeing John. John moved in with Margaret and her two children in 1971 and he married Margaret about a year later. About two years after that, they had a child together, Robert Brown. They all lived together and in 1978, when David was about 16 years old, Margaret asked him to leave the house. He went to board with another family. Only six months later, he moved back home and slept in a caravan beside the family home. He paid board while he was there and would join the family for meals and gatherings. He stayed there for about four years. In 1982, he moved into a share house to live with friends. In 1984, John and Margaret separated after 13 years together. Margaret moved into rental accommodation with their son Robert, who was 11 years old at the time. After the separation, Robert spent every second weekend and holiday with his father. Quick recap. John and Margaret got together in 1971 and Margaret already had the two children, 10-year-old David and 6-year-old Alison. They lived together as a family and John and Margaret had Robert together. But after 13 years, they separated. So by this time, David was about 23 years old, Alison was about 19 and Robert was 11. That's the family dynamic, and sets us up for the case, which is a battle over John's estate with the stepson David on one side and the biological son Robert on the other. In 1989, David married. His stepfather John, his mother Margaret, and half-brother Robert were all at the wedding. Only a year later, David and his new wife separated. This sent David into a depression. He began a two-year program of intensive psychological counselling. David said that he had a period of social withdrawal where he was withdrawn even from family and friends, including from his stepfather John. There was a conflict between David and his brother Robert that I need to mention now because it was relevant to their relationship with the deceased. In 1992, David was living in Sydney with his girlfriend Donna and his half-brother Robert. Robert came home one night with some friends, made a lot of noise, woke David and Donna up, and there was a fight. Robert said that David headbutted him. David said that it was an accident. It all ended with Robert moving out and their relationship being damaged. John knew about the fight between his son Robert and stepson David and attributed some blame to David. This is referred to as the Clovelly Incident. 
1999, after about seven years, the relationship was generally repaired. David and Robert visited John together, and in early 2001, Robert started working for David's company. Robert was still working for David's company five years later, when David took a sabbatical. He went to Thailand for seven weeks, volunteering to rebuild houses after the tsunami. He left his partner Donna and his half-brother Robert in charge of the business. During this time, Robert quit and left the business. According to Robert, David had promised both him and another employee a 25% share of the profits while he was away. When David didn't pay up as promised, Robert decided to cut his losses and left. When David returned to Australia, he found that Donna had moved out and the business was not doing well, was in fact facing a cash flow crisis. This caused a massive rift between David and Robert, such that they didn't speak to each other again until these court proceedings. A few years after these events, David did send Robert a Facebook message, wishing him a happy birthday and asking that they put everything behind them. Robert did not respond. Going back to John, the father of Robert and stepfather of David. In 2015, John's brother Colin died. David heard about it and sent another Facebook message to Robert, asking that Robert pass on his condolences to John. Robert said that he did pass on this message, but his father John did not respond or express any interest in David. In 2018, Robert married and his father John was there. Around that time, John moved to the Central Coast, close to where Robert, his wife and their children were living. John died on the 23rd of October 2019. David was told about his stepfather's death the following day by another relative. At the time John died, he had not been seen or spoken to his stepson in about 15 years. John had paid for a no-service, no-attendance funeral, which is exactly what he got, no funeral and no service. Robert did hold a memorial celebration for family and friends. David was not invited and did not attend. David arranged his own private viewing at the funeral home. Robert arranged a funeral announcement that first described John as, quote, dearly loved father of Robert, Alison and David, end quote. When later questioned, Robert said that he referred to John as father to Alison and David as a nice gesture to them, but later clarified that it was not to say that the deceased would have referred to himself as being their father. When John died, he left a will that left his entire estate to his son Robert and appointed Robert as his executor. His last will was made in July 2018, over a year before his death. He did not mention David, Alison or Margaret in his will. The Hearing David made a family provision claim, seeking a share of his late stepfather's estate. He was seeking a provision of $240,000 from the $500,000 estate. So he was seeking basically 50% or near two of the estate. Allison also started proceedings to make a claim on the estate, 
Robert reached a settlement with Alison in which he agreed that she would receive $50,000 and nothing more. During the case involving David and his application, David took issue with the payout to Alison, basically claiming that Robert had acted outside his duties as executor and had artificially devalued the estate by paying Alison $50,000. The court disagreed and confirmed that it was entirely within Robert's duties as executor to settle Alison's claim and thereby avoid the cost of litigation. Much better to pay her out $50,000 now without extensive court proceedings than run the risk that after about, you know, $70,000 of court proceedings, he might still be ordered to pay her $50,000. So on the face of it, it did appear to be a wise decision. David put forward some type of argument that the payment to Alison was to allow Robert to keep a good relationship to Alison that he was trying to bribe her. He also accused his sister Alison, claiming that she had misused their mother Margaret's money, that Margaret's will had been changed to exclude him, and he accused Alison of having agreed to share Margaret's estate with Robert, and Robert of scheming to exclude David from John's estate. Justice Henry found no evidence to support these accusations, and definitely no evidence of any collusion between Robert and Alison. As to keeping a good relationship with Alison, the court found that this was not the case, and noted that Robert had referred to Alison in an uncomplimentary fashion in his bank records at the time the payment was made to her. Which has me incredibly curious about what he recorded in those bank records. So he's done the bank transfer, transfers to her $50,000. What description did he use that could be described as uncomplimentary, I wonder? By the time of the hearing, once you had deducted the legal cost to date and the $50,000 payment to Allison, the estate was worth about $476,000. This didn't include the superannuation death benefits that had been paid directly to Robert. They were $217,000. Let's get the super out of the way. Eight years before his death, John had made a binding nomination with his super fund. So with the super fund directly, he had signed a nomination form that stated that on his death, Robert was to receive 100% of his superannuation death benefits. And that is exactly what the super fund did. They fulfilled that nomination. Generally, children of the deceased can apply to a super fund seeking to receive all or part of the superannuation benefits. However, even though child is defined as including stepchild, in the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act, the Superannuation Complaints Tribunal has ruled that a child of a deceased former partner is not a potential beneficiary, as they are not a child of the deceased, and the deceased having divorced his mother before death, you could say they weren't even stepchildren anymore. Evidence Justice Henry noted at the beginning of his judgment that each of the parties attacked the credibility of the other accusing each other of lying and giving false evidence. 
Justice Henry stated that he believed that both David and Robert had endeavoured to give their evidence truthfully and to the best of their recollections. However, stepson David's credibility took a hit during cross-examination and his responses relating to his financial circumstances, his relationship to his biological father and the extent of his claimed impairment. Likewise, on Robert's side, the judge was not entirely satisfied with Robert's evidence relating to the value of the estate, Robert's financial circumstances, and his signature on the deceased will. Any family provision claim requires the court to look at all of the circumstances. So they look at the relationships everyone had, especially with the deceased, financial contributions, domestic and care support, length of the relationship, any estrangement and the cause of estrangement, they look at everything in order to weigh up who John was morally bound to make provision for. So let's start with David's relationship with his stepfather. David argued that he and John had a close father-son relationship for a continuous period of 35 years. According to David, he liked John straight away and came to love him like a father, even saying that he called him dad. He said that while John was not given to open displays of love and affection, he was involved in raising David and giving fatherly advice. David said that after he moved back home, to sleep in a caravan on John and Margaret's property, he continued to have a father-son relationship with John, with John buying him his first set of tools. David moved away from home in 1982, but says that he kept in contact with his mother and stepfather about once a fortnight. He said that he continued to visit John after he and Margaret had separated. But from 1990 to 1992, he did not see John at all. David attributes this to mental health issues he was having at that time. But once he was well enough, he began visiting John again in 1992. At first, once a week, but dwindling over time to be about four times a year. David said that he did not see or speak to his stepfather at all after 2004. He had a long depressive episode and was focused on his recovery. He did not contact John and John did not contact him. About 15 years later, in 2019, John died. David says that he was devastated when he heard the news. Robert's evidence in relation to David's relationship with John was that in the 20 years before John's death, He never spoke about David. He would sometimes ask whether Robert had heard from Margaret or Alison, but never asked about David. According to Robert, a few years after the divorce, John said words to the effect of, quote, David and Alison are no longer my concern. You're my son and that's it, end quote. Let's flip the coin and now look at Robert's relationship with John. Robert said that he had a close and loving relationship with his father. After his parents separated when he was only 11 years old, he spent every second weekend and the holidays with his father. When Robert was an adult and started working, he would visit his father once a fortnight and they would speak on the phone once or twice a week. 
Robert gave evidence about the Clovelly incident of 1992, when David supposedly headbutted him, and they had a major falling out. Robert said that when John found out about what happened, he said words like, quote, Get out of there if David's going to behave like that. End quote. In 2005, Robert told his father that David had offered him 25% of the profits of the business while he was overseas. According to Robert, John responded, quote, You should get that in writing. Mate, without that in writing, I guarantee you won't see that money off him. End quote. Robert did not ask David to put the agreement in writing as he trusted David to pay him the share of the profits. He didn't get that share and the relationship was damaged beyond repair. Robert stated that after he married Alicia, his father said to him, quote, You're the last of the Browns. I'd love you to have a son so the name can carry on. End quote. Indicating that in John's mind, he only really had one child, and that was Robert, and that David and Alison were no longer children to him. When John was living in Wollongong and Robert and his family were living on the Central Coast, John would come to stay with Robert and his family every second or third weekend, including Easter, long weekends, Christmas, birthdays, and they had two set days, Monday and Wednesdays, when he would call his father to have a chat. After John retired, they suggested he move to the Central Coast to be closer to them, and he did this in 2018. John would go to their house for dinner once a week and drop in two to three times a week. Justice Henry came to the following conclusions based on the evidence that John did step in and act as father to David from 1972, when David was 11 years old, until 1982. During that time, David was treated as John's son and a full-time member of the family. When he moved into the caravan, David was still part of the family, just more independent. And their relationship continued even after John and Margaret separated. However. The relationship changed from the 1990s, possibly due to the lack of contact. There were long periods when they didn't speak or see each other. So in fact, they did not have a continuous, uninterrupted relationship for 35 years, as David was claiming. They had a relationship close to 12 years, but it dwindled after that. Their relationship was also likely to have been adversely impacted by the Clovelly incident and the business dispute between Robert and David in 2005. There was little, if any, contact between David and his stepfather for some years prior to 2004 and no real connection between them afterwards, to the extent that Justice Henry found that, quote, their relationship had likely dissolved by the time of the deceased's death, end quote. And it's almost poetic to see the word dissolved used to describe a relationship. It is sad to think about relationships dissolving into nothingness, but if you think about it, it happens all the time. Old school friends, work colleagues, past partners, 
It's just harder when it's family. On the other side, Robert enjoyed a close and loving relationship with John throughout Robert's life, characterised by regular contact, ongoing emotional support and care. In marked contrast to John's relationship with David. Two fathers. One thing that the court looked at was David's relationship with his biological parent Graham. After all, as well as his stepfather John, David also had a biological father out there and was eligible to make a claim on Graham's estate as well. Which brings into question, of the two fathers, who has responsibility to provide for David? Do they both? Obviously, David's relationship with his biological father would be relevant. He tried to downplay that relationship in the proceedings. David's evidence was that after John and Margaret married, his biological father Graham moved to the US. He said that at the time he was relieved that he wouldn't have to see Graham again. He later found out that his father hadn't moved to the US. He had actually moved to Western Australia and his mother had lied to him when she told him that Graham moved to America. David said that he had seen Graham about eight times and spoken to him by telephone on about three or four occasions. In 1982, when he first moved out of home, he had asked a cousin for his father's phone number and called him. They met up, and this was the first time they had seen each other in ten years. David said that within an hour of being with Graham, his curiosity was satisfied. It was clear to him that Graham had no interest in him. David did not have any interest in Graham either, and that it felt like a meeting of strangers and very odd. David describes telling Margaret about the visit. She said she hoped John never found out that David had contacted his biological father. However, Completely at odds with all of this evidence was a letter David had written to his psychiatrist in 2006. In the letter, David refers to meeting Graham and keeping in touch with him. David refers to Graham as his father and John as his stepfather. He describes Graham as someone who, quote, has an amazing capacity to turn his hand to anything, end quote. That meeting Graham gave David a self-confidence and reminded him that he was, quote, my father's son, end quote. They kept in touch until Graham, quote, started going back to his religious phases, end quote. Thereafter, Graham would make contact with David and David would go and visit him. David once asked why Graham stopped visiting him when he was a little kid. Graham responded that if he couldn't have all of David, he didn't want anything. Whilst all of this isn't hugely controversial or remarkable, it did go against David's credibility that he appears to have tried to downplay his relationship with his biological father in order to argue a greater claim on the estate of his stepfather. Just as Henry accepted that John may have taken on a father role to David in Graham's absence. However, Graham was a constant presence in David's life until the age of 11, and maintained some contact with David after 1982. And in the judge's view, John's role in David's life 
never completely extinguished the paternal bond between David and Graham. One of the factors that the court needs to look at with a family provision claim is financial needs. The applicant is applying to the court saying that adequate provision has not been made for them. So that goes hand in hand with showing that they have financial needs that have not been met. This requires evidence of David's financial position in order to assess his needs for financial provision. To counter this, Robert provided evidence of his own financial needs. So, David presents his financial records and his situation and says, I need money. And to counter this, Robert can do the same and go, yes, you may need things, but I do as well. As I mentioned earlier, Justice Henry wasn't too thrilled with either David or Robert's evidence of their financial circumstances. There were gaps and both did not present an entirely accurate accounting. David was 61 years old, single with no children. He lived in Brisbane in rented accommodation with two other people at the time of this application. He was a self-employed building caretaker. At the time of the hearing, he was also the sole director and shareholder of UniTrade and UFM Realty Pty Ltd and the sole beneficiary of the David Brown Family Trust. I won't go into the business setup except to say that the business brought in an annual income that was paid to David as his income in exchange for work that he did for the business. Due to an old injury, David had to employ someone else to do the more physical work, and as such, this brought his income down to $75,000 per year. Of that, he said he only got $25,000 per year in salary and the rest went to business cost. He had $180,000 in assets, mainly in shares and bank accounts. He had no superannuation, having withdrawn $122,000 from his super to pay off a mortgage on a property that he later sold. David's affidavit evidence of his income was inconsistent with his tax return for the financial year, which stated that he had taxable income of $80,000, and the financial statement he had completed when seeking a bank loan two years earlier, in which he said he made $55,000 per year. So you've got to be careful with those financial records because there's normally a trail, whether it's tax returns, applications for bank loans, or even just bank records. David's credibility took another hit when he was caught out in another lie. He told the court he was paying $650 a fortnight in rent because his two flatmates were maintaining the property and receiving free accommodation in exchange for the work. However, it later came out that instead of paying $650 a fortnight in rent, he was actually paying 600 Not much there. Small difference. But he was also receiving $500 a fortnight from his flatmates in cash. He was also receiving rent from the business of $400 a fortnight. So he was being incredibly deceptive to state that he was paying the rent by himself. He also failed to disclose assets held overseas. 
but there were records that showed that David had transferred $77,000 to a Thai bank account. Justice Henry noted that, quote, It is incumbent on an applicant for provision to disclose to the court as fully and frankly as possible all details of their financial and material circumstances. David's disclosure in his affidavit evidence was not satisfactory, end quote. Regardless, overall, Justice Henry determined that he had enough financial information to make a decision in this case. As well as David's financial needs, the court also considers his health needs. There was a report from a Dr. Bith, Bith, Bith. There was a report from a Dr. Bith that assessed David as being moderately to markedly impaired in relation to his ability to work. The court found that medical opinion weakened because it was based on information David had given his doctor, but also because of David's LinkedIn profile, which stated that during the relevant times, David was able to embrace change, does not shy away from conflict, has great leadership skills, can execute and complete projects and tasks with complete commitment in all respects, is is entrepreneurial, and an extremely focused individual who can cut through to the core of the situation. All of which describes a person much at odds with the person described in Dr. Biff's medical report. David had also emailed a Dr. Gibson, stating that he, at the direction of his barrister, had taken a test for RSD, which is a comorbidity of ADHD. He scored 52 out of 60 and admitted in his email that, quote, it wasn't hard to game the test, end quote. The medical report from Dr. Bith was trying to put forward the idea that David's mental health was so impaired that it prevented him from working. The judge did not find this evidence persuasive. Rounding that all up, David was seeking provision to help him obtain permanent accommodation and a rainy day fund, and he asked for $240,000. The outcome. The first question is eligibility to make a family provision claim, which I mentioned before, not everyone can make a claim on a deceased person estate. There are eligibility requirements. So spouse and biological children, yes, they can make a claim. Former spouses that are still financially dependent and persons who have lived in the, with the deceased in their household dependent upon them. So a person who was at any time wholly or partly dependent on the deceased and also a member of the household of the deceased. David originally applied as a child of the deceased, but in the alternative, he applied to be eligible as a person who had been dependent on the deceased and lived in the deceased household. He was not a child of the deceased. He was a stepchild, and stepchild did not fall within the definition in New South Wales. In all other jurisdictions in Australia, stepchildren are expressly permitted to apply for a family provision order, just not New South Wales. 
David put forward the argument that the meaning of the word child had evolved over time and should now include stepchild. He said that John effectively adopted him by raising him as a son for 35 years and that it was against community standards to not consider him to be John's child. However, just as Henry said that even accepting that David was treated as a son, at least for a time, John did not adopt him and he does not fall within the New South Wales definition of child. There is also a large body of case law that states that the relationship between stepchild and stepparent ends when the natural parent and the stepparent separate. There is some common sense to this, because obviously the relationship with a biological parent does not end I mean, at least not without adoption or emancipation. So the biological relationship continues. But if your biological parent then goes on to have a new relationship, that new person takes on a step-parent role. And it would only make sense that the previous step-parent position ended when their relationship with the biological parent did. But that's just one way to look at it. David did succeed on the second claim of eligibility as a person who had been dependent and lived with the deceased. He lived with John for about five years when he was growing up and was dependent upon him for accommodation, food, clothing and emotional support. It is important to point out though that whereas the child eligibility requirement is unconditional, if you are a child, you're in like Flynn. But with the other eligibility, it has a condition. As well as proving that you at some time had lived with the deceased and were dependent on him, you also need to show that there are factors that warrant you making the application for provision or you being granted provision from the estate. David had passed the first hurdle of dependency. What about the second? David needed to show factors that demonstrated that John had a social, domestic or moral obligation to make testamentary provision for him. A significant factor will be the relationship between David and John and whether there were any features of the relationship that created a moral obligation for John to leave something to David in his will. David argued that John did have a social, domestic and moral obligation to provide for him because he had effectively adopted David by treating him as a son and member of the family. And he said that this paternal relationship lasted for 35 years. To support this case, David referred to three factors. First, what he called the extinguishment of his relationship with his biological father, Graham. The, quote, involuntary cessation of contact, end quote, with Graham, and the fact that by the time he saw Graham again as an adult, the alienation was complete. Two, he relates to the displacement of Graham as his father during his childhood as causative of his mental illness and ongoing personality disorder, and this in turn prevents him from being able to work and support himself. So John replacing Graham's role in his life caused him mental illness, which caused him not to work, which causes an obligation on John to reimburse him if he were. And three, 
John rebuffing David's attempt to reconnect after the 2005 dispute with Robert. Robert disputed all of this and he argued that David had only been a member of John's household for five years and became independent at 16. The lack of contact for the last 15 years of John's life and the infrequent contact for the 15 years before that broke any bonds between them. He argued that there is no evidence that John did anything to alienate David from his biological father. He had nothing to do with that. Yes, he married Margaret, but he didn't necessarily kick Graham out of the picture, and there was no evidence to indicate that John was in any way responsible for Margaret's decision to lie to David and tell David that his father was overseas. Robert also argued that the suggestion that John is somehow the cause of David's mental health issues is unjustified and not supported by any evidence, in particular medical evidence. Also, David's two text messages to Robert in 2013 and 2015, Robert argued were not actually attempts to contact John. It was messages to Robert, passing on a message to John, but he didn't actually contact John. Let's take a brief second, a couple of minutes. No. Let's take a couple of seconds for me to regain my breath and for you to think about which way you're leaning at this stage. Do you think that John, as stepfather, had an obligation to provide for David? Or are you in agreement with Robert that that relationship was over and that John had no moral obligation to provide for a stepchild that he hadn't seen in 15 years. <sighs> that yawn is absolutely not indicative of how I feel about this case. Just excessive talking makes me yawn. Okay, while pretty much taking Robert's side, Justice Henry said that nevertheless, the nature and quality of David's relationship with John was a factor which warranted David's application. He had lived with John from the age of 11 years old and was treated like a son. That fact is unavoidable, regardless of anything that happened later. Justice Henry said, quote, I accept that there would be a range of views within the community as to whether a testator, who had been divorced from their adult stepchild's parent for nearly 30 years, and who had had no contact with that stepchild for over 14 years, would have any moral obligation to provide for them. There is also an absence of evidence of the deceased himself acknowledging any ongoing relationship with David for some years. Nevertheless, a relationship existed that was, in my view, close enough to that of a parent-child relationship for a significant period of David's life, particularly during his teenage years and young adulthood such that David could be considered a natural object of testamentary recognition, and I consider that it warrants the making of this application, end quote. That is the second hurdle passed. David is eligible to make this application. The next question is, should any provision be made for David? It first must be determined that adequate provision has not been made, for David's proper maintenance, education or advancement in life. And then the court needs to decide whether they ought to make provision. 
There is a lot that goes into determining whether adequate provision has been made. What is adequate? What is proper? And then how to determine what provision to make based on all of the circumstances and the size of the estate. But we are now getting into page 69 of a 78-page judgment, and I think the part I passed the point of boring long ago, so I am going to skip to the end. Quote, The question whether the deceased will made adequate provision for David's proper maintenance or advancement in life must be considered in the context of the totality of the relationship between the deceased and David, the relationship between the deceased and Robert, the size of the deceased estate, David's needs, and the competing claim of Robert, end quote. Justice Henry note noted that there wasn't a father-son relationship for some years, but that other than the condolence messages sent by David, no effort was made to, by either of them to keep in contact and maintain their relationship after 2004. Quote, Whatever emotional attachment David had towards the deceased, it is not difficult to conclude that it was likely one-sided by the time of the deceased's death, and the deceased regarded and treated Robert as his only son. David maintains that it was Robert's character and conduct that caused this, and that Robert and the deceased disowned him. I do not accept that submission. End quote. Making an evaluative judgment based on all the circumstances, Justice Henry was of the view that it was open for John, acting as a wise and just testator, to provide for Robert and exclude David. And it followed that Justice Henry declined to make any provision for David. Even if he had been persuaded to make provision for David, he said that it would have been $50,000 and not the $240,000 that David had asked for. David's application therefore failed. Cost David's legal costs were estimated to be $120,000. Robert's costs were estimated to be about $101,000. But those estimates were based on a, a hearing that lasted for three days. This hearing actually ran for six days. So you can expect the legal costs would have been more than that. And if those legal costs were deducted from the estate, this would leave just $273,000 in the estate. Justice Henry adopted the standard positions that cost follow the event, which means that if you lose, you pay. And so he ordered that David pay Robert's legal cost on an ordinary basis. So not only would David be required to pay his own legal cost, but because he was unsuccessful, he would also have to pay Robert's legal cost, which were all up more than $220,000. That was the first judgment. Robert applied to the court to have his legal costs paid by David on an indemnity basis. What do we mean by this? Costs on an ordinary basis are the legal costs incurred, but they're less than the full amount. It can be the amount agreed between the parties or assessed by a Supreme Court cost assessor. Some of the cost, some of the legal costs will be recoverable, 
and some will not. So just roughly, you generally say that if David is ordered to pay Robert's cost on an ordinary basis, then David would be paying 60 to 70% of Robert's legal cost and Robert has to cover the difference. So on, so Robert took this back to court and said, no, I want David to have to pay all of my legal costs, which is on an indemnity basis. But an indemnity cost order is not available in all cases. You generally have to present an argument as to why it should apply. Relevant to this cost order is any offers of settlement parties have made before the matter got to court. In particular, was there a Calder Bank offer? A Calder Bank offer is an offer of settlement from party A to party B, and it is special because if the offer is not accepted by party B and they get a worse outcome in the court proceedings, they can be ordered to pay party A's cost on an indemnity basis from the time they rejected that offer. This encourages parties to make serious offers of compromise and for parties not to refuse offers unreasonably because you could end up having to pay more legal fees. So the aim is to avoid legal costs for the parties involved and to avoid cluttering up the court with cases that should be resolved outside of court. In this case, Robert had made a Calder Bank offer to pay David the sum of $50,000 on 2nd of October 2020. This offer was made 16 months before the hearing and two years before the judgment that resulted in David getting nothing. So clearly, he would have been better off to accept that offer two years ago. However, David rejected the offer and instead suggested that he be paid $150,000. Only two weeks later, Robert's solicitor offered the $50,000 again but sweetened a deal by adding $10,000 for David's legal costs. And at that time, David's legal costs were $10,000. So it was basically like, here's money to cover your legal costs and you get to keep all of the $50,000. The parties attended mediation in December 2020, following which Robert's lawyers again made the offer of $50,000 and again it wasn't accepted. In February 2021, David changed solicitors who appeared to have an overly optimistic view of his case, and they offered to settle if David received $216,000 from the estate. In August, Robert's solicitors increased their offer to $65,000 and to pay David's legal cost. This was not accepted and was followed by two more offers from David's solicitors, the first seeking $120,000, and the second seeking $106,000 plus $50,000 for legal costs. If David had accepted that first offer of $50,000 when it was made, he would have been in a better position. He wouldn't have spent two years on legal proceedings and he would have $50,000 instead of a massive debt. Instead, now he had his own legal cost of about $200,000 And there was also the estate's legal costs, which would be something similar. Robert argued that David should have to pay the estate's indemnity legal costs from the date of refusing that first offer, basically saying, from that date, 
all of the legal costs incurred by the estate were David's fault because he refused to accept a good offer. David argued instead that each party should pay their own cost. He pointed out that having to pay the estate's legal costs would be a significant financial burden for him and that he would not have capacity to pay it, would immediately become insolvent and have no choice but to declare bankruptcy. As an alternative, David argued that he could pay a cap sum of $50,000 towards Robert's legal costs. Which, if you think about it, that would leave Robert to pay about, what, $150,000 of his own legal costs, even though he won the case. The court determined that it was not unreasonable for David to reject those first two offers of settlement, as at the time not all of the evidence had been served. This meant that David didn't have a clear idea of how likely his application was to succeed or fail. The offer made in August 2021 for $65,000 plus David's legal costs, this offer the judge found was unreasonable to reject. Whilst it appears that David did not accept this offer because he believed he could get more from the estate, he was warned by his solicitor, and the previous solicitor as well, that in refusing that offer, there was a risk that the court would make him pay all of the estate's legal costs from the date of refusing. So he was aware of the risk he was taking on. Having regard to all of the circumstances, the judge made the decision that David pay towards the estate's legal cost. And in relation to these cost proceedings, the parties would pay their own cost. I I have seriously skipped over a lot, and you may be screaming for more explanation, or you may be groaning that I left in too much as it is. It is really hard to reach a happy medium. I am happy to receive all feedback, and I've made it easier for you to give me that by creating a Justin Case Law Facebook group. The link is provided in the episode notes. I post the episode links on the Facebook page and you are welcome to comment on the post with your thoughts and suggestions. Even if your suggestion is way too much legal content, it got boring, you talk too fast, anything. Or you can make your own post sharing feedback or case or topic suggestions or just legal issues that interest you. You can even say how you feel about the outcome of this case. Lessons Let's look at the definition of child. I found this aspect of the case interesting, especially the idea that the step-parent relationship only lasts so long as the relationship with the biological parent lasts. I can understand that that wouldn't apply in all all relationships, but maybe that's the starting point. And I can understand this not being the case emotionally, that having been raised by a person creates emotional and familiar ties that don't end when the relationship with the biological parent ends. On the other hand, I'm concerned about the legal mess that could be created if it was otherwise. And let me give an example. Now, this is just an example. Tom is the son of Annie and Arthur. They separate when Tom is only one year old. Annie repartners and Tom's new step-parent is Ben. Ben leaves when Tom is five years old. Ten years later, Annie repartners with Chris and they have 20 years together 
before Chris's unexpected death. Annie then has a three-year relationship with David before he moves to live overseas. And when Annie is in her late 60s, she meets Edward and they marry. They are married for eight years before they divorce. This would make Tom the son of Arthur and the stepson of Ben, Chris, David and Edward. If the step-parent relationship is not ended, when the relationship with Annie ended, that is potentially four stepdads and five estates Tom could make a claim to. So perhaps the New South Wales position makes more sense. What is more relevant to me was whether the stepdad filled a father role. Did Tom live with him and was dependent upon him for care and support? I can understand the position while at the same time recognising that often a step-parent can be a true parent in all ways except biological, and that needs to be recognised and respected, and also that not recognising a stepchild relationship puts an additional burden on the stepchild to prove eligibility. Now for a nerdy English fact, in like Flynn is the saying that means having quickly and easily achieved a goal or gained access as desired. I said it offhand and then it made me think, damn, where did that come from? What does it even mean in like Flynn? Is it because it's rhythmic? Well, it was first seen around 1940 and it was used in a 1942 sports publication that said, quote, answer these questions correctly and your name is Flynn, meaning you're in, provided you have two left feet and the written consent of your parents, end quote. The phrase could be slang, so instead of saying I'm in, you say I'm Flynn. And the slang has also been stated to be have emerged during the Second World War and be associated with actor Errol Flynn. Just another side tangent from me. But that is enough for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you will join me for my next episode.